0: Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone has the opportunity to make sure that they are spiritually prepared to study. Spiritual recovery occurs when we uh, admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and at that instant we are forgiven and cleansed of not only those sins but all unrighteousness. And with that cleansing of sin, we also have the uh, recovery of the walk by the Holy Spirit, the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, as we move forward in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. And it is and the whole spiritual life for the believer is dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit, in the church age. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can gather together this evening to just reflect upon your word and to reflect upon all that we have been given in our so great salvation. As we approach this uh, weekend and this time of the year, we reflect on the fact that it was at this time, uh, almost 2,000 years ago, that our salvation was secured as Jesus of Nazareth, who was the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, came to take away the sin of the World, And he did so by functioning as the sacrificial offering who paid the penalty as our substitute on the cross, and that by doing that, our sins were paid for, the issue of your justice being satisfied was resolved, and the basis for our justification, our forgiveness of sins was taken care of, the result of which is that we have the opportunity through belief in you, we have eternal life. Father, we thank you for the, for the fact that you have given us your word to explain all of these things to us and to help us understand all of the many different aspects to our salvation and to the spiritual life, the new spiritual life, the new life that we have in Christ. And we pray that as we study this evening that this will just help us to gain a greater appreciation for all that you have given us and supplied for us and provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to uh, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, and while you're turning there, I just thought of something, so I'm going to fix something here uh, quickly before we get started, and then we will be, okay, okay. The last couple of weeks, now several weeks ago, we started in Romans 5, 2 through 4 as an outgrowth of what Paul had said in his discussion and his explanation of justification by faith, which uh, began, actually began in terms of laying the foundation back in chapter, uh, towards the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, the foundation being that every human being, moral or immoral, still falls short of the glory of God, the conclusion being stated in Romans 3.23. We fall short of the essence of God, and therefore man is incapable uh, of ever overcoming his own deficit. And the only solution is a divine solution. The only solution is grace. The only solution is for God to provide that which needs to be accomplished. It was foretold through many different uh, means many different pictures and what we call typologies, which are uh, sort of pictures made from either events or objects or people or animals that por- were designed to portray something about God's uh, God's work of salvation. And the greatest of these types or pictures in the Old Testament was that of the Lamb from the very beginning of time at following Adam's sin when Cain and Abel were to bring a sacrifice to God Cain brought from his own produce that which was the result of his own effort whereas Abel brought that which God had instructed him to bring which was a sacrifice of a lamb and it was Abel's sacrifice because it was done by faith and in obedience to God according to Romans chapter 11, I mean Hebrews chapter 11. And Cain was rejected because Cain sought to impress God by his own efforts, by his own works. And from that point on throughout the Old Testament you see this development of the imagery of the animal sacrifice, the sacrifice that is uh, on as a substitute for the individual who's coming before God, but the lamb, the, the sacrifices of an animal can never take away sin. We know that uh, an animal, uh, an animal's life, an animal's blood, uh, the life being portrayed by the blood, is not sufficient to pay the penalty of sin. It's not sufficient for uh, expiation, for canceling out, the debt of sin, and so there had to be a sacrifice that was worthy. Now, the worthiness of that sacrifice was depicted by the lamb that was without spot or blemish at the uh, Passover, especially in Pesach begins tomorrow night, and at the original Passover, it was a roasted lamb that was roasted on a skewer that would have been shaped somewhat in the shape of a cross. That was sacrifice. It was chosen four days earlier. It was evaluated to make sure it was without spot or blemish. And then it was sacrificed in the blood of that sacrifice, which depicted its life, because Leviticus teaches that uh, the life is in the blood, and that blood was then smeared on the doorposts in the lintel of the doorposts of the house. And it was when the when God, who was bringing death throughout Egypt upon the firstborn in every family, saw that blood that was applied, that God would pass over the meaning of Pesach, the meaning of why we call it Passover, is that God would pass over that house because the death of that lamb had provided a, a covering for uh, that household. And so God passed over, and death did not come to that, that household. And this was provided for for the Jews. This was the basis of their redemption. There was a purchase, as it were, that brought them out of the slavery of Egypt. And that becomes the primary picture in the Old Testament as also in the New for God's redemptive work, that it is God who provides the sacrifice, the lamb, whose death pays for the price for sin. But a lamb could not do that, so there is a, a someone who becomes a man because like has to substitute for like. And so the se- eternal second person of the Trinity uh, comes into human history, born of a virgin, uh, called Yeshua because he will be the Savior of his people from the Hebrew uh, verb, Uh, Yeshua, which indicates salvation or deliverance. And so he is called Yeshua because he will pay the penalty for sin. He is the Lamb of God who goes to the cross. And so that death provides a foundation for justification. Justification is then explained by Paul in Romans chapter 4 as being grounded in what happened with Abraham long before there was even the Mosaic law. Long, long before. Two thousand years before there is a Jesus of Nazareth. There is an act that takes place uh, by uh, Abraham when he trusts in God, and God on the uh, seeing that faith declares Abraham to be righteous, not because of who and what Abraham is or what Abraham has done, but because of of the object of his belief. He believes that God will provide this salvation. It's to, to Abraham at that point in his life, uh, long before we meet him in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees, his understanding of God and salvation and the promise of the savior, savior was probably as um, as somewhat fuzzy as it was for many of us when we first trusted Christ, especially if that was at a young age as it was for me and I know it was for for many of you. There was an understanding that, that God was uh, provided a solution to a problem and that was through Jesus and he died for us and we just grabbed hold of that in faith and believed it. And it is because of that, that God declares us to be righteous. So Paul goes into this in Romans chapter 4, and Romans 4 uses this illustration of Abraham. He's he's justified before, there's, before he's circumcised. He's justified before the Mosaic law is given. He's justified before any of the rituals that come into Israel later come into practice. So it shows that justification is totally apart from ritual, totally apart from circumcision, totally apart from obedience to the Torah, It is exclusively based on faith in the promise of God. It is ultimately uh, God's work that is the basis for our justification. So having gone through all of that, in Romans chapter 5, Paul begins to develop the benefits of justification in 5.1. Now 5.1, and this is one of the toughest chapters in all of Scripture to exegete and to deal with because of a number of factors, which we haven't really hit yet, but we begin to hit them in the next uh, paragraph in verse uh, verses 6 through 11, but specifically in 12 through 21. And that is because often this chapter, I think, is, is misunderstood. As I always heard it, Romans... Up through Romans 5, you're dealing with justification and the spiritual life or sanctification doesn't begin until Romans 6. But the more I'm studying Romans 5, the more I'm realizing that Romans 5 is the transition chapter to the spiritual life. And this is the first chapter in Romans where Paul begins to talk about life because justification, then his discussion of justification is completed by the end of chapter Uh, chapter 4, and now we're talking about the benefits of justification, the benefits of being declared justified by God, is that we now have a new life in him. We stand, as he says in verse 1, we stand, or excuse me, in verse 2, we have this access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's a perfect tense verb, which indicates completed action. We have come to stand, in, already come to stand in this place. So when when we look at that phrase, in which we stand, it's talking about the present results of of standing, which happened at some undetermined time in the past, but it happened when a person trusted in Christ as Savior. In verse 1 he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace, present tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he expands upon that, saying that it's through him, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope. Now, this is, this is the focal point here, is on hope. We have hope mentioned here in uh, two or three times in verses uh, 2, again in verse 4, again in verse 5. And hope isn't mentioned again until we get down to uh, Romans chapter uh, chapter eight, and when we get down in Romans chapter eight, all of a sudden we start hearing about hope again. Now, why is that important? Well, when you go to Romans uh, eight eighteen, actually back up a minute. When you look at Romans eight, Romans eight gives is, is the the conclusion of what Paul says about the spiritual life. He wraps it all up and he brings this to a conclusion by uh, verse 30 and then the last part of chapter, chapter 8, 31 to 39, is, is merely sort of a sum, summation or conclusion to that particular section. So as he builds to his conclusion, he says in verse um, verse 18, I consider the sufferings... Of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, what did he just say? Uh, what I want you to do is think in terms of of what Paul has said and where Paul is going. I learned a long, long time ago that when I was reading something that was uh, a book that was difficult, it was helpful to read the conclusion so I knew where the author was going. And then once I knew, I had a handle on where he was going. It was easier to follow how he got there. And and so Paul talks about what in verse 18? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Have we seen that terminology before? Sure we have, right here in this section. In uh, Romans 5, 2, and 3, we rejoice in hope uh, of the what? The glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in adversities, in and in, in suffering. So here we have glory and sufferings in 5, 2, and 3. And we, where do we run into the, those same ideas again when we get over to the conclusion of this section? In uh, 8, uh, 18, 19, uh, talks about the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Expectation means that there's a, 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 a forward-looking uh, focus, that we're looking forward to uh, something that is going to bring things to a conclusion. Verse 20 states that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in, in what? In hope. That's the first time we see the word hope after we get out of 5-5. See, we're, uh, you look at the text of Scripture... And the text of Scripture tells you. You learn from it what what it's saying, and and it uses these these are just typical literary devices. And this is uh, like bracketing. If you're familiar with, uh, if you were in the Navy when you were shooting uh, the big guns off of a ship, or you're in artillery, it's a procedure known as bracketing. You first, you know where your target is in the first shot is to get the range and you overshoot the target. The next shot, you want to back it up enough where you undershoot it, and that brackets the target. Then that third shot goes right dead center and takes out the bad guy. That's bracketing. Well, you do the same thing in literature, and it's called an inclusio, where you have certain words or phrases or structures at the beginning and at the end which tell the reader that this is the this is the structural unit of thought uh, that we're, we're focused on. And so this tells us that, that the structural unit of thought here begins at, at 5, 2 through 5, focusing on the benefits of justification, which is our new spiritual life in Christ, and that it all points to this thing called hope, that our future expectation... And so Paul says that that God subjected the universe and the world to this judgment of sin, this penalty of sin, in hope. That is because there is a future reality and there is a need in order to prepare for that future reality. Certain things had to happen that that hope may be brought to reality. It's explained in uh, verse 21 and 22 We'll go through that eventually, but then when we get to verse 24, uh, Paul says, for we were saved in this hope. Well, there's language that's very similar to what we find at the beginning of chapter 5. We're saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. What does that that tell us? That tells us that hope is something that is related to this time frame. Just as faith is related to this time frame. Second Corinthians chapter five, we walk by faith and not by sight, but when we die and we're face to face with the Lord, we're going to be walking by sight. And so faith is no longer operative because faith is not based on what we see. It's not based on empiricism. It's based on trust in the witness of God. Hope's the same way. Uh, hope is not based on something that is seen, It's based on a promise, and this is what uh, Paul emphasized with Abraham, that Abraham believed God, he believed God's promise of salvation, and that is what gave his life meaning and definition was because he's focused on something that God is going to give him in the future, and that gave him hope to endure whatever he went through in life. That hope that we have is not just wishful optimism, but it has a, a, a certainty, something that is, uh, that is definite, but it is based on a promise. Verse 25 of Romans 8 says, But if we hope for what we do not see, that is, the hope has got to be based in a promise then, the, because it's based in faith, and hope and faith are bound to time. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it, with perseverance and then he goes into a discussion of the uh, role of the holy spirit and god's overall plan in the remainder of this section down to verse down to verse 30 but what we see confirmed again as he comes to the conclusion in Romans chapter 8 is the the focal point of hope and its relation to a promise and the certainty of that promise because it is grounded in the character of God. The 1600s were a difficult time in England. They weren't quite as difficult as the Reformation period in the 1500s, especially the time during the reign of uh, Mary, uh, Mary Tudor, who was also called Bloody Mary during her very brief reign, over 300 Christians, Protestants, were, uh, burned at the stake. They made the ultimate sacrifice as a witness, uh, for Jesus Christ. But in the 1600s, England continued to go through these religious, uh, tumults and, and within her, uh, within, within the country. You have the claims of the Stuarts to the divine right of monarchy and the claims of the Puritans that they did not have uh, absolute authority from god but that their authority was limited by virtue of the laws uh, uh, of england and so this was a time uh, when there were not only problems related to the the authority uh, uh, assertions of the uh, of the stuarts but after the end of the uh, cromwell period and the restoration of the monarchy under Charles II. Charles II came back as a Catholic, and so this created another measure of problems in, in England. And it was during that time that there was a couple by the name of Andrew and Elizabeth Renwick who were uh, just common laborers in Scotland, Uh, They had uh, lost all of their children to disease, and they were left uh, in a state of of bereavement. And the wife, Elizabeth, much like another Elizabeth in the Scripture, sought the Lord in prayer that God would give her another child. And God answered that prayer, and a young boy uh, came into their life. They named him James James. And from the very beginning of his youth, they, um, they taught him the scriptures. And he responded. He was extremely positive. He was extremely bright. He went to Edinburgh. Here he's the son of Weavers, and yet he was, able, he was so bright, he was accepted at the University of Edinburgh. But he was denied a, deg- a degree. He was refused the right of graduation because he refused to accept Charles II. As the head of the Scottish church, his family were devout Presbyterians. As the um, uh, nonconformists in Scotland were being martyred uh, quite frequently during this time, the English would uh, nail their severed heads and their hands to the city gates as a warning to others. So he left Scotland, which many did during this time, and as they had in the century before, went to the continent, went to Geneva where he received further training and ordination, but he still had a love for his own people back in Scotland. And so eventually he returned to Scotland uh, where he began to uh, teach and to preach the gospel and to organize uh, churches. He he worked uh, diligently around the clock, he rarely slept. He uh, frequently, when he did sleep, he was just camping out uh, on the moors in the cold and stormy nights. And he was frequently uh, wet. And often the only place he had to study was in a in a cave or somewhere uh, out in the uh, in the wilderness. But he was soon became known, and he was a wanted man uh, by the English and so he frequently had to evade the king's soldiers until one day he was captured in edinburgh and uh, put in prison and convicted of treason his mother visited him in pre- prison and you can imagine how she felt and she uh, hated to see the know the fact that he would soon be martyred and it was his head and his hands that would be hanging from the gates of, of edinburgh On February the 16th of 1688, he smuggled out a message to her and said, There's nothing in the world that I am sorry to leave but you. Farewell, Mother. Farewell, night wanderings, cold, and weariness for Christ. Farewell, sweet Bible and preaching of the gospel. Welcome, crown of glory. Welcome, O thou blessed Trinity and one God. I commit my soul into thy eternal rest. The next morning, he embraced his mother and they went to the scaffold. He was 26 years old. But he had that peace because of his focus on the promise of God. And he knew exactly where his destiny was. And he knew exactly what would happen. So there were no fears, there were no terrors. He knew he was justified. Uh, by faith alone, and so he had that complete confidence and that complete rest. He had a sure and certain hope, and that hope was in the essence of God, the glory of God, which is what Paul says here in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and not only that, but we rejoice in adversities. He's rejoicing in his adversity because he knew that what this produced in his life. Now, as I looked at this in the last couple of lessons, I pointed out that this was a a, uh, a type of construction that is based on a uh, form of logic that was developed during the uh, 5th century B.C. called the sorites, which is sort of a stair step of logic where if one thing is true, then the next thing develops from that and the next thing develops from that and so forth. And so I pointed out that there were these Virtue stair steps in several passages of scripture, we looked at the stair step of adversities in romans five three through four where where the our stair step of virtues where we went from adversity to endurance, endurance to tested or approved character, and then that yielded hope or confidence. The more we see God uh, intervene in our lives and, and provide for us, the more confidence we gain, our faith is strengthened. We saw the same kind of thing in James 1, 2 through 4, where James writes that we counted joy when we fall into various trials because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its uh, perfect work. It's usually translated, but it's the idea of maturing work or the end goal that God has in mind in terms of our Christian life, our growth to spiritual maturity, that we may be perfect, that is, mature and complete, lacking nothing. So then I added to the first uh, virtue stair step, a second virtue stair step. Uh, the words uh, and the stages are a little different, but uh, there's a lot of similarity there. Uh, Begin with the trial. This leads to testing or the evaluation of faith as we see the utilization of the doctrine in our souls as it's applied to the uh, particular uh, situation or adversity. The more we do that, the more it produces endurance. And this is what the two, uh, the point where the two uh, uh, stair steps uh, relate to one another, and then it yields maturity. We went from there to 2 Peter. And 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, uh, focused on a lengthier list of virtues that uh, also relate to this same idea, the virtue, uh, or the stair step to virtue Uh Peter writes that we're to give all diligence, we're to focus on, we are to make it a point, a goal in our life to add to faith. That's the starting point. Faith meaning uh, this idea, usually in a list like this, uh, faithfulness, our our trust in God, trust in a faithful God, add to your faith virtue, and then to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, which is also a fruit of the Spirit, to self-control perseverance, Pointed out that was that's the commonality in the in the three lists to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness. Now this is an interesting word. I was in a hurry last time when I got here, uh, Philadelphia, where we get the name of our city. Philadelphian was also the name of a an ancient uh, city in uh, Western Asia Minor or minor, modern Turkey, and this really focuses to the love for those in the body of Christ. Jesus said in John 13, 33 and 34, that we are to love one another as he loved us. That is brotherly kindness, brotherly affection, and adding to that love as the ultimate in this list of values. So love really comes at a maturing level. Love isn't something, I mean, in the full sense that we have as young believers. To really have that as part of our uh, uh, life, our character makeup, uh, spiritually comes only as a result of spiritual growth. It's not something you can expect of an infant. Uh, we, they have a measure of love. They have something like that, just as any infant does, but it has to reach maturity, and that only comes as you go through this process and come to understand uh, the Word of God and see God work in your life ex- Excuse me, experientially. And so I added this uh, virtue stair-step, this virtue ladder, to uh, the other two, pointing out that one commonality: endurance, endurance, hanging in there, not giving up, not quitting, and no matter how much the opposition uh, is that we face. Think of someone uh, like James, who just I just read about, and his uh, James Renwick and his uh, his martyrdom. And there were so many at that time; they were focused on doing what God said to do, whether that involved the overt preaching of the gospel in the face of opposition or just uh, being a faithful parent or whatever area of life God called you to. So we looked at, at at those virtue stair steps, and then I talked about the the fact that virtue, as the Bible uses the term, isn't grounded in a Um, Aristotelian or a Platonic concept of virtue, but it's really grounded in the way the Old Testament talked about God. There's only three or four times in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament that the rabbis translated uh, a, a couple of different Hebrew terms into the Greek word arete when they translated the Septuagint. And so what they were saying is that this virtue, this in their understanding, virtue related to the perfections of God's character. It wasn't something that was found in man or in creation, which is what the Greeks came up with in their ideas, but this is something that's rooted in the very character of God, and I developed that by looking at the fact that man is created in God's image in Genesis 1, through 28. But then that image is defaced, corrupted, marred in Genesis 3 when Adam sins. And all of Adam's descendants are still in the image of God, but it is a defaced image. We can't be what God intended us to be because of corruption from sin. And when we are saved, when we are justified positionally in Christ... Then God begins to work in us and through us, according to Romans eight twenty eight to twenty nine, to conform us back to that image of Christ. So that the as as the image of Christ is developed in us, then it produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is the character of Christ, and we have that transformation. Okay, that all brings us up to this this point of of uh, where I want to focus. Uh, in the rest of tonight's lesson we got started on this last time in the past we've talked about spiritual skills uh, call them stress busters these are skills a skill is something you have to practice again and again and again to perfect it it's not something that you just go and and do I remember when I was young and I had to uh, learn I was learning piano and taking piano lessons and I had to practice every morning I had to get up and I had to practice for 30 minutes and practice scales. Uh, you probably did the same kind of thing. If it wasn't with piano lessons, it may have been in sports, it may have been a dance, it may have been any number of other things, but you had to master those skills. You had to do them over and over and over again, and that was really exciting, and it just bored us to tears, but that was something we had to do. That's how you learn. And that's how we must drill ourselves and think about it. Whenever we face adversity in life is every time we have a decision to make in how we're going to react or respond to a set of circumstances, we have to decide, are we going to do it God's way or my way? Are we going to apply the principles of Scripture are, are the doctrine to this situation? Or are we just going to re- react in our own emotion, out of our own selfishness, and our own arrogance? Every decision then becomes a test. It may not be, a a test doesn't mean it is something big. It just means it's it's an opportunity to either obey or disobey God. Now, when we disobey God, there's a means of recovery, and that's the first skill, and that's to learn 1 John uh, 1.9 which my mother had me memorize as first complete sentence I ever said. I guess she decided I needed to learn how to uh, uh, confess my sins in light of where I would probably go in life. You don't have to shake your heads in agreement. <laughs> so that's our recovery tool. When we fail, we initially react in anger, in bitterness, in resentment, whatever it may be. Immediately we think, oh, that I reacted too quickly there. We confess that sin and we are back in fellowship. That is simply a restoration and reorientation of direction. In the Old Testament, they use the term shuv, uh, which means to turn. Uh, repent in Hebrew is teshuvah, which means to uh, turn toward God. So the confession is a turning but it doesn't move us anywhere. we just uh, reoriented the direction of our life. Of course, we may sin again two seconds later, and before long we end up spinning in a circle. But if we stay focused in the same direction, which uh, the Bible refers to as abiding in Christ or walking by the Spirit, then we have another uh, tool or skill to develop for handling the the problems uh, of life. We refer to this as the filling by the Holy Spirit who fills our soul with the Word of God and brings it to our memory, and walking by the Spirit. Then we have the faith rest drill, grabbing hold of the promises of God. And so you have to have something to grab hold of. Uh, We have a a new promise book finally got printed and is out, and I think it's been put out in the back. Is that right, Sandy? It's been out, so you can uh, look at the new promise book. And you have to memorize those promises. We don't always have time when you're driving down the highway at 55 miles an hour to pull out your promise book, reach in the glove box, pull out your promise book, and it's hard to handle that and the cell phone you're texting with at the same time. <laughs> so you have to uh, memorize these promises. That's good for you. It'll help uh, forestall Alzheimer's perhaps, if for no other reason memorize promises for, for that reason. So we have to memorize promises. And then we have to learn about God's grace. That's really what's going on here in Romans 5. As I've been uh, reading through this and studying it, I wonder why in the world does Paul jump in verses 2 through 5 to this this virtue ladder, this stair step of spiritual growth here, in the right out of the shoot, as he comes out of this this section on justification. And I'll tell you why. Because the focus is on understanding grace and that you can't implement, you can't even begin to walk up this virtue ladder if you don't understand grace. And the place to understand grace is the cross. And that's what becomes the focal point of verses 5 and following. So we have these... Uh, three skills there on the right, faith, rest, drill, grace, orientation, and doctrinal orientation. Grace orientation, we learn about God's grace. In doctrinal orientation, we learn all of the procedures and promises that, and principles that God has in his word. And they really work together. It's not a linear thing. It's an inner dynamic between these three things because in the faith, rest, drill, Our brain is, our mind is grabbing hold of a promise. That's a doctrine. The fact that we have it is because of grace. So you see, they all really interconnect. And as we implement that, we grow in our understanding of God's grace and the fact that he's constantly providing for us, and we don't deserve it at all. And then we continue to grow as we learn more promises and as we claim them. And that's one of the great things about memorizing promises is you usually have to repeat it, or at least I do, about uh, 80 or 90 or 150 times before I've got it. And then three weeks later, I've forgotten it, I have to go back and review it. But every time you repeat it in your mind, you're thinking about it and you go, wait a minute, I never really noticed this connection there, or that connection here, or what that word means. I wonder what that word means i 've got to go look that up and so, as you are memorizing a passage your your mind is really drilling down into the meaning of that uh, that verse or set of verses, so that you understand not you 're not just doing rote memory without understanding the concepts you're You're thinking it through and assimilating the principles and promises that are embedded within that that particular promise. Now, as we go through this whole procedure, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit begins to change us on the inside out. It's not this kind of top-down, outside-in kind of change, which is what comes from legalism. Legalism says that if you want to uh, impress God, you need to clean up your life in these 25 areas. And you can't do these things, and you need to start doing these things. And while there's an element of truth to that, if it's done without rec- the recognition of the work of the Holy Spirit, then it's nothing more than wood, hay, and straw, according to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. And so we, as we spend time walking by the Spirit and being nourished by the Word of God, then it is God, the Holy Spirit, who inside of us begins to, just as your body takes the food that you swallow and begins to metabolize it, break it down, uh, put it into the bloodstream, and it goes out and strengthens and nourishes the cells in your muscles and your brain. So when you take in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit then takes that and begins to break it down assimilated into your thinking into your life and it's spiritually metabolized so it becomes part of your your thinking and the more you use it the more it becomes second nature becomes it needs to become a habit something you normally do you have to practice it not wait until oh this is a big moment now i'm going to figure out how to practice it too late that's one of the, read uh, Proverbs 3 sometimes. Wisdom goes crying through the streets, come and get me now. And then wisdom says, if you don't get me before the crisis, then when the crisis comes, it's too late. You can't learn it after the fact. It doesn't help. So Galatians 5, and 23 is another one of these kinds of uh, lists of virtues, the fruit of the spirit or the production of, of the Spirit. It's not production of you, it's what the Spirit produces in you as a result of the command back uh, six verses earlier in 5.16 to walk by means of the Spirit. And as we walk by the Spirit, the Spirit produces these character transformations in our life. Love, joy, uh, that's the rejoicing that is mentioned back in Romans 5. We rejoice in the uh, hope of the glory of God, and we rejoice in adversity, uh, love, joy, peace. We have peace with God, but that is a positional peace. But as we walk by the Spirit, there, as we grow spiritually, we develop an experiential peace, tranquility, contentment, a relaxed uh, mental attitude so that as we go through the exigencies of life, we're not, uh, we don't hit the panic button quite as much. Notice I didn't say we quit hitting the panic button. I said we don't hit it quite as much. The sin nature is never eradicated. And it pops up at some of the most inconvenient times. We love joy, peace, and then long-suffering. In the Greek, it's makarthemia, which means uh, long on anger. It takes a long time to get upset over something. Uh, it's the opposite of being short-tempered it's being long-tempered and then kindness kindness and goodness are byproducts of grace orientation because as we recognize how nasty we've been toward god and that only comes after you've been saved you begin to realize that that your life really is not all that all that, or at least before you were saved, wasn't all that significant for God. He didn't save you because you're just so sweet and wonderful and brilliant and accomplished and heaven just wouldn't be the same without you. God saved you in spite of yourself because you're just a dirty, rotten, little, obnoxious sinner like everybody else and God uh, doesn't have... there's nothing good in us that would cause God to want to save us. And we finally realize that everything that I have in life Is due to his goodness to us. He is he's kind to us when we don't deserve it. So kindness and goodness develop uh, in that spiritual growth process. Uh, Faithfulness. We are we become more faithful uh, to God in our walk with Him. Then gentleness. Gentleness has the same idea. We're not uh, prone to uh, anger or or being. upset and bitter, uh, but we're treating people with grace. Self-control, self-mastery, which is a mastery of the passions which are defined in the previous verses, verses uh, 19 through 21, define the uh, works of the flesh, the works of the sin nature. So there is a self-mastery over the sin nature. And then Paul concludes against these things, there's uh, there's no law. So these are all part of that growth growth uh, process. Now, in this chart, I started to build several years ago just uh, this, this growth progression. At the base, you have those, uh, those basic five spiritual skills. Everything grows out of those. There's nothing really new above that. It's just developed into a, a another level. Uh, at the next level we have, as we move out of spiritual childhood, we get a personal sense of our eternal destiny. That means we begin to realize more and more where God is taking us and that, that future expectation that we have, the certainty of that future destiny begins to impact our present decision-making. We've all seen examples of that. If you're a parent and you have children... If not, if you can just remember to your own childhood, Um, I always remember one of my mother's favorite sayings, it seems, was you have to learn to think beyond the end of your nose. And most children are that way. They just don't think in terms of consequences an hour two hours or a week or three weeks or further down the road. And then one day they begin to... All of a sudden begin to dawns on them that there are consequences, good and bad, and they need to make decisions today in light of what the ultimate consequences uh, need to be, what they would like to see. And so this is developing just within a human realm, sort of a sense of where we're going and we make decisions today in light of what we want to do a year or two or three down the road. And the same thing happens spiritually as we realize where God's taking us and that this is a preparation and training period that God is is taking us through circumstances to prepare us to rule and reign with him in the future, that's our eternal destiny, then that begins to impact the decisions that we make today. In 1 John 2.13, these are called young men. Uh, the the babies, spiritual infants, are called uh, babes or children, uh, technon, and then 1 John 2.13 describes the uh, young men, the adolescents, and then we have... I guess I didn't fix this slide, so I'll just click my way through it real fast. There we go. We had the development of our uh, adult skills. These three all relate to God. They interact. We have a, a personal love for God on the left that's related to learning more about all that God has done. It is an outgrowth and a response to grace orientation. The more you really understand grace, all of a sudden we begin to realize all that God has done for us. It is related to loyalty, as I've pointed out. Love for God is really defined in Scripture as loyalty to God, and loyalty is manifested by obedience. This is why Jesus says, "'If you love me, you will keep my commandments.'" He's not talking about having warm feelings in your tummy about God. He's talking about loyalty. How do you know if you love God? If you're obedient, love means loyalty in, in scripture. And so we come out of a culture where love relates to emotion and feeling, but emotion and feeling is, is a pretty flighty thing. It doesn't last all the time, but we have to have the integrity and the character to be loyal And so we build that personal love for God. And as we come to love God and understand uh, grace, then it impacts how we treat others, both others in the body of Christ, love one another as as, uh, Christ has loved us, but also loving those outside of the body of Christ. Uh, Galatians 5.14, James, a couple of other places still quote from uh, Leviticus 18, that we're to love our neighbor uh, as ourselves. And then we are to focus on Christ, occupation with Christ is a form of love for christ uh, hebrews uh, that should be hebrews twelve two not hebrews two two We focus upon Christ, and then ultimately, the result of this is happiness it 's that joy that James talks about in James one two The reason I have uh, this this happiness sharing the happiness of God at the end of the progression is because James starts off saying, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. I think that the rest of James is teaching how you do that. And so the ultimate end of it is what James starts off commanding at the beginning, which is to count it all joy. And so the only way we can do that is to go through the growth progressions that are defined uh, in the book of James. So we go forward through this, and then we come back to Romans 5, 5 through 11. So in the last, uh, I've got about five, six minutes, uh, what I want to do here is to focus our attention back on this passage. In James. 5, I mean, excuse me, in Romans 5, 1, we read this conclusion. Therefore, because we have been justified by faith, we have, present reality, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in this grace in which we stand, verse 2. And then he moves from talking about what we have in this position we're now in, in verses 1 and 2, to talking about this, this virtue ladder, this stair-step progression to spiritual maturity in verses 3, 4, and 5. Why does he do that? How does this feel? Fit within his thought flow. It fits within the thought flow. We understand it when we look at how these these verses begin in the Greek. It's somewhat clear in the English. In verse five, and some versions will put a paragraph there. Most of them will put a paragraph after verse five. I don't think, uh, and some of my some Greek texts usually don't even put a paragraph break until verse twelve. I think that's more correct. I think one through eleven represents one basic uh, paragraph, which is a collection of thoughts surrounding a basic, one basic idea. In verse five, it begins. Now, hope does not disappoint. Now, that initial word "now" really is a break from what he has said in verses two through four. Verses two through four just gets us to the word hope. How do we get hope? There's the progression. And what Paul really wants to talk about, though, is hope. He says, now, hope does not disappoint. Why doesn't hope disappoint? That's an important question. Why aren't we disappointed? Because he says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, it's not as clear in the English, but that verb has been poured out in the Greek is a perfect tense. That means it's a completed action. If that pouring out of God's love is completed, when did that complete? When was that finished? When did that happen? That happened when we were justified. That happened at the instant you trusted Christ and your Savior. At that instant, God poured out his love to us by means of God the Holy Spirit. It's a completed action with results that go on Uh, through the rest of our life and on into eternity. Uh, And it is poured out by the Holy Spirit. What's the focal point in that verse? It's understanding the dimensions of this love that has been poured out in our life. Well, what do you mean? Why is that so important? So then Paul has to explain this, and that's indicated by the first word in the next verse, verse 6. He says, "For." For in English almost always translates a Greek uh, connective, the word gar, which means an explanation, or in some cases it could almost be uh, translated as because. So now he's going to give the reason or the cause for the principle in verse 5. Why did this happen? Because when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, he goes right back to the fact that if you're going to understand how to make it through this stair-step progression, you really have to take some time to think about what God did when you got saved. You really have to take some time to try to probe into the dimensions of God's love And all that he did for each of us at that instant of salvation, the more we learn that, we become uh, grace-oriented, doctrinally oriented, and our love for God begins to uh, grow and develop. And so Paul explains this, for, that is, because... When we were still without strength, when we were spiritually impotent, in fact, spiritually dead, we were, we were incapable of saving ourselves. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what all unbelievers are called. The Greek word is asabasis. It is ungodly. It's a technical term that always describes unbelievers. Christ didn't die for the godly. God didn't die for the popular Christ didn't uh, excuse me Christ didn't die for the popular Christ didn't die for the good looking and the talented and the brilliant he died for everybody and they're all ungodly every human being is born ungodly and so then he explains it again he has to have another explanation for same word in the greek because scarcely, and then he gives an illustration, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. If you're really good, it's still almost impossible that somebody's going to die for you. And he says, yet perhaps for a a good man, someone would even dare to die. Maybe if you're for a righteous man, it might happen. If you're good, maybe, but it's even going to be more rare. But God, see the contrast in verse 8, but God demonstrated his love Toward us, in that while we were still sinners. Now, he died, didn't die for you because you were righteous. He didn't die for you because you were good. He died for you because you were ungodly and a sinner. That's who Christ died for. He died for people who didn't deserve anything. God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. He paid the penalty for us. And then he, then he says, much more than this. Okay, now we're going to really hit hit the development here. He says, having now been justified by his blood. See, now where did that come from? That came from the whole discussion of chapter 4. So in verse, verse 9, what Paul does is he goes back and he says, okay, I've had this loose thread hanging out here. And I'm going to tie that into what I've been saying about what Christ did on the cross. That's where we were justified by his blood, by his death for us as sinners on the cross. And that's completed action. Having now been justified by his blood, by his death, we were justified by the instant we trusted in Christ as Savior. But then he says we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now if you look at that word wrath as it's been used in Romans from Romans 1.18 and following that the wrath of God has been poured out upon those who have rejected him, who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, wrath is a term for God's judgment in time on individuals and uh, on the human race, for divine discipline, divine judgment in time. So, he say, we're, so the term here, we shall be saved, is a future tense. Now it can be that as you grow and mature as a believer, you're being saved from wrath, and it could also refer to something that happens more uh, f- f- uh, something that happens further away, but it probably relates to the whole process of sanctification. We often talk about the three stages of sanctification: that at the cross we're saved from the eternal penalty of sin, and in the in phase two we're saved from the power of sin. And as we're saved from the power of sin, what are we also delivered from? The wrath of God, the judgment of God, experiencing the divine discipline of God on uh, not only those who are unbelievers suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, but those who are believers who are living in carnality suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And then how does verse 10 begin? Four, another explanation. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Here he uses an a fortiori argument, which means he's arguing from the lesser to, or from the greater to the lesser. He says, if when we were enemies, God reconciled us through his death, much more now that we've been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? See, here again, Paul sets up what he develops in the first part of Romans 6, which we talked about some last Sunday morning. It's the death of Christ that relates to justification, but it's his resurrection life that is the foundation for the Christian life. And that is one reason why the resurrection is so important. It says, When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his Life. Now, I want to point something out here. We'll I'll look at it only briefly, and that is according to the Reformed theologians, the the, the uh, especially those who are Calvinists, those who come out of out of the Reformed tradition, Presbyterianism, Congregationalism, Calvinism. Uh, they often look at this term as related to the physical life of Christ on the earth between his birth and his crucifixion. But as Paul develops this, if we look at this as foreshadowing to what he develops in Romans 6, it's not his pre-crucifixion life here, it's his post-crucifixion resurrection life here that is the foundation for the Christian life. And uh, and this is one of those problems in Reformed theology, is that they want to say that not only was Christ's death on the cross redemptive, but so was the suffering he went through. Any suffering he went through in life was also redemptive. But again, see, what I hope you're catching from this is how important it is not just to do the in-depth, microscopic uh, exegetical analysis, but to look at how uh, the argument flow, how how somebody's thought develops within the context and how he uses certain words in certain ways in a broader spectrum than just looking at the the minutiae. You have to do both. So he says in verse 11, not only that, but we also, what? Rejoice. Have we seen that word before? Sure. Again, it's an inclusio. He started off talking about rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God in verse 2, and now he comes back to rejoicing in verse 11. See, that packet, that brackets the, 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 the paragraph. See, when I say that, oh, it's a paragraph between 1 and 11, it's not because I had a liver quiver in my soul and I thought, oh, that just seems to be a good place to break it. It's because there, there's 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 verbiage in the text that shows this kind of uh, structure. Uh, it starts off with rejoice and ends with rejoice. It brackets the text. So we, not only that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now that ties us right back to the fact that we have peace with God in verse 1. So you see how verse 11 connects us back to the opening thought in verses 1 and 2. And it's as we tie this whole thing together that we're going to come to an understanding that the foundation for moving forward in the spiritual life is understanding what really happened at the cross how God's love is demonstrated to us and that he died for us and we didn't deserve one thing. That's the key to grace orientation. And if you don't get grace orientation, which necessarily implies a heavy dose of humility, there can't be any growth because growth demands submission to God's authority, which means humility, which means dependence upon God providing the solution and we just rest in it. We'll come back and get into this in a little more detail next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to focus on this section of Scripture, to be reminded that there is a plan, and that plan includes a way of progression, a way of growth, and that all of this was mapped out by you in eternity past, and that this plan is foundationally built upon understanding your grace that it is undeserved and unmerited, that there's not one thing we can do to ever, ever gain your uh, approbation because we are born corrupt, we're born sinners. All, as Isaiah said, all of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. It's only when you provide us with the free gift of, res- of uh, righteousness that we can have eternal life by simply accepting that free gift, trusting in Christ as our Savior. So, Father, we pray that you would just impress these things upon our our minds, upon our soul, that, that God the Holy Spirit can use this in producing spiritual growth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.